He's a practicing advocate and member of the Johannesburg Bar, and he's going to be um, talking about hate speech. Um, you might know Mark from a great podcast called Brain and Event. Um, I encourage you all to check out the, um, the YouTube channel there. And um, this will be recorded, and Mark will talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have an open Q&A. Well, thank you guys so much for coming. It's a real delight to be here. Um, you're going to get a, an interesting talk from me today in the sense that we'll talk about some of the philosophical ideas around uh, free speech and white masses and when you ought to restrict it. And then I'll give you some real life cases um, uh, in both senses of the word, because they relate to trials that I've uh, personally run. And you'll see how uh, the law operates in practice, um, whether it's the cause of the moral intuitions uh, and what uh, hate speech law will look like. It's like going forward. So I'll start off with the Slavic Constitution, which is widely regarded as one of the most uh, progressive constitutions in the world. Uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was um, giving advice to people of Egypt, she said, when we got this opportunity to create a new constitution after their revolution, she said, don't base it on the American constitution, base it on the South African constitution. So we have quite a strong, explicit right to free speech, um, which includes, but it's not limited to um, freedom of the press, freedom to access information and to uh, uh, engage in artistic creativity. So not just the work itself, but the process. Um, and specifically academic inquiry. We then have three limitations. So there's basically the apple of free speech and the bark that's taken out. So the first is propaganda for war. The second, the incitement of imminent violence. And the third being our hate speech clause being the advocacy of hatred based on race, gender, ethnicity, and religion. And that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. So I'll just go through that a bit more detail. So the first is thinking about propaganda for war, you're dealing with speech that's cataclysmic, um, that it could cause immense amounts of, of violence. Uh, the second, we're talking about imminency. So the violence must happen now. And uh, you'll all be aware of uh, um, the corn dealer case um, by J.S. Moore. You know, the idea that if you're standing in front um, of a group of angry workers and you say the corn dealer is exploiting, you should rise up against them and they've got their pitchforks and their lanterns. There's a real, real risk uh, that they'll kill him and his family and you know, burn the place down. But if you were to say an identical thing in a newspaper and everyone's eating their um, bagel and locks, it's unlikely to occur. And so therefore the speech should be protected. So the context of matter. Our third clause waters down two things. So the one is there's no requirement of imminency and violence is now reduced down to harm. And, and the caveat is that it must be on these list of grounds of race, gender, ethnicity, and religion. Um, the constitution has an equality clause, which includes 17 grounds. And so a much broader set, like sexual orientation being listed. Um, so this is specifically not listed in the hate speech case. And the idea is that those things are largely immutable and, and there is also a history of people being persecuted on those grounds. So if you think about apartheid in South Africa, that's why we have race. Think about um, you know ethnic killing, which we still have going on in South Africa. Certain uh, groups of foreigners have been burnt alive in South Africa. Um, and then if you think about religious conflicts between Protestants and Catholics or Jews being murdered in the Holocaust, um, there's a reason why those particular groups are highlighted. So. Why does free speech matter at all? What's the underlying reason for it? Well, the, the classic argument is that 
it's a good way to find out what's actually true. So again, if you think about mill and the marketplace of ideas, the idea is that you should be free to say things that are false because they can sharpen someone's sword, that someone else can learn an enormous amount, um, learn about why they believe what they believe because you've given them a counter argument. And it might be that in expressing your view, which is true, you still find out um, more about it as well. Maybe your true view is just incredibly unpopular. So you know, at one point in mind to say that the uh, earth was not at the center of the universe would have been a very unpopular thing to do, it's also false. So you want to be able to protect that so that you can find out what's actually true. The other one is that you should care about people being autonomous and being able to make decisions for themselves. That when you say you should not be allowed to hear certain information or not be allowed to utter certain things, uh, you're treating people like children and you're not treating them like uh, truly autonomous beings and, and sort of fronts on their dignity. Third, in a democracy, it's important to have this range of ideas being spoken and um, that in order to be able to make the right kind of choice about who you elect, you want to have more information before you. Um, if you think that the state is filtering information as well, um, then you're unable to make an informed decision that there's things that are removed from you. South Africa has a, a strong history of censorship. So it used to be the case that um, record stations, um, when they were given their vinyls, certain tracks were physically scratched out uh, because the songs were banned. And um, there was a list of hundreds of books that were banned, including the book uh, Black Beauty, which is about a horse. Uh, but uh, the idea that black and beautiful was seen as uh, forbidden. And uh, pornography was also uh, widely banned in South Africa. And when I was a child, there was a kind of liberalization effort. So you initially had um, stars on nipples, and then the stars were kind of changed to um, what you find on a scratch card, that you could make the choice whether you wanted to see something that explicit. Um, so it took a while for South Africa to move into a space that allows free speech, and, and you could see what kind of role it played in terms of who was elected into power. And the fourth is that it's important to instill tolerance in people, that being exposed to ideas that you might find repugnant um, gives you information about that group. And so the one is that you could say, well, you know, so let's say a person of a certain faith, that you think that other faiths ought to be allowed to express their views um, on the basis that they'll extend their tolerance to you. And that a lot of uh, our ideas around free speech really come from this idea of religious tolerance. You think about Protestants and Catholics hacking each other to pieces. The idea that, well, maybe both of us should be allowed to express our, our different views on how many angels are dancing in the head of this good without uh, fearing death. That would be very nice. Um, also, you can have people who are explicitly hateful. So you can imagine uh, the Ku Klux Klan having rallies and uh, you know burning crosses. Uh, you might think that that's given free information. Uh, that if you're the FBI, you can say thank you for telling us um, how many of you they are. We can keep it on you. Uh, it would be much harder for us to surveil you, uh, but you've you've outed yourselves, um, and now we know how much hate there is. So in South Africa, we don't have a law which bans the waving of the swastika. Um, my grandparents fled Nazi Germany. I think waving the swastika around is a pretty um, immoral thing to do. Um, it's the kind of thing that can be very traumatic for people to see, but we almost never see it. Um, and so if it were banned, I would have no idea how much, um, how many people supported the idea of swastika. So occasionally when you do see one scrolled somewhere, uh, there can be a response. Uh, the Holocaust and Genocide Center will often reach out to that person and ask them why they did it. Uh, would they like to know more about the Holocaust and encourage them to come see the museum? Um, there have been a few famous cases of people who've said things like, um, 
that they were friends of Hitler, that Hitler had good ideas, um, without really knowing what they were saying. And then after uh, learning more about the Holocaust, then changed their minds publicly. And that's enormously powerful uh, when you have someone change their minds because they can change the attitudes of their followers as well. So you could take the view that given how important free speech is, that you should never restrict it. And um, you might take the view that uh, even in the corn dealer case, that the only people who should be punished are those that are uh, killing the corn dealer um, or burning the buildings down, but the person uttering uh, shouldn't be held liable at all. Um, you could think though, that once you create an environment of risk, um, in a tinderbox, particularly where violence could erupt, that you hold some liability for that. Um, so depending on your attitude towards competency for risk, um, you might be more susceptible to the idea that we should restrict some kinds of speech. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the litigation that I've been involved in. Um, first of all, I've given you the constitutional state. Um, now, our constitution basically sets the norms for what um, the legislature can write into law. And so we hear about the, an act called the Equality Act, and the Equality Act um, deviates in some important ways from the constitution. Um, one of which is that I mentioned there's four grounds listed. Uh, it replicates those in the, in the equality clause of the Constitution, so has 17 grounds, including sexual orientation, uh, language, uh, culture, ethnicity, uh, uh, marital status. It also, um, instead of requiring that you had to incite harm and propagate hatred, it initially said that the speech could either be hurtful uh, or harmful or incite harm or propagate hatred. Now, when you have all those ors together, uh, the easiest thing to do is go with the lowest common denominator. So um, my, my client is a famous journalist called John Kralani, uh, quite famous for being an anti-apartheid journalist um, and uh, also quite religious. And South Africa was, I think, the fifth country in the world to allow for gay marriage. Uh, we allowed it in 2006 um, through a, a partly judicial process and partly through a legislative process. So um, our constitution says you can't discriminate on the grounds of sexual orientation. The Marriage Act says, marriage between a man and a woman, and a lesbian couple took them to court. And our court decided that the act was unconstitutional. But instead of doing what the American courts would later do, which was to say, we now proclaim a right to gay marriage, um, one judge in dissent said that would be the right thing to do. The other one said, it's important that parliament weighs it, um, that to protect the legitimacy of the process, to ensure that um, the, the people are heard, uh, that we're given two years to do that. And ultimately, Parliament did do that. Gay marriage is largely seen as uncontroversial on South Africa. But Mr. Bellani wrote this article two years later where he said, I pray that politicians would have the balls to change the Boston Constitution that allow marriage to marry a man and ditto women because um, one of these days, some of them demand the right to marry an animal. And the um, article that it was published uh, has a um, the title, Call Me Names, But Gay Is Not Okay. And it had a cartoon of a man marrying a goat. He wasn't responsible for the title or the uh, or the image, but very much inflames uh, people because of that. Um, and a number of complaints were laid against him uh, by the Human Rights Commission. He was held liable for committing the debate speech. Now, the Equality Act doesn't have a criminal sanction in it. Um, it can require an apology, an interdict, so prevent you from saying speech again, and a financial sanction. So you could be made to pay a fine um, to those that were wronged, uh, or to uh, an organization that's, that combats hatred. 
Now, and you'll note that the ground uh, that was mentioned is sexual orientation, not a sin of constitution. So he brought a challenge um, uh, to the judgment on the grounds that uh, the act was unconstitutional, that it went too far, that uh, one, enlisted sexual orientation when the constitution doesn't allow it, uh, and two, that ultimately he was held liable for hurtful speech. I acted for him uh, on appeal. Uh, we were successful in striking down the act, um, and the initial version of it was uh, rewritten to cohere exactly with the constitutional test. And then went on further appeal to our constitutional court, where the court um, said, well, we think that sexual orientation is an analogous ground, that there is enough evidence to think uh, that gay people in South Africa find themselves similarly situated to those other groups, that gay people being beheaded, you have phenomenon called corrective rape, um, which is that lesbian women are raped by men in an efforts to make them straight, um, that uh, that kind of homophobic speech, that there's a danger that it could, you know, could lead to the vilification of the group. And so allowing uh, that uh, group to be protected was recognized by the Constitutional Court. Ultimately, I think a good thing. And they found that hurtful speech cannot be hate speech, and that um, our rule is that things that are offensive or shocking are protected, um, and that the offense that you might feel is analogous to you know being hurt. It's different from being hurt. The idea was that hurtful speech is that which is deeply psychological, psychologically traumatic, um, an ongoing trauma you might imagine kind of thing would require uh, psychological intervention, and that's meant to be a deeper front to your dignity. In South Africa, the term dignity has a number of different meanings, and some of which would track with the Kantian notion of dignity as autonomy, and some of which, um, which is probably the more popular view and widespread view is that it accords with well-being. Um, so in the sense that your well-being is being finished, I would say into account. So ultimately, it was successful in that the act was struck down as being unsuitable, but Mr. Kualani was then held liable for a committed act of hate speech. We can return later to whether uh, the courts uh, act in the course of the law or not. Uh, another case in which I was involved um, relates to displays of the old South African flag. Um, so uh, South Africa used to be a variety of different countries together. And in 1910, they were unified. Um, so we used to have a, a British ensign flag. And, and after Union, there was a discussion as to you know, what should be the flag that represents the different nations in South Africa. You had a very bloody Anglo-Boer War. Um, the uh, British had put the Afrikaners into concentration camps. 27,000 um, Boer women and children died in these concentration camps, in addition to 20,000 um, black people as well. Um, and so there was a lot of bitterness. Ultimately, the idea was to have a compromise flag, which is the Dutch prince's flag. So it's an orange, white, and light blue with uh, three internal blacks, including the Union Jack. There was some consternation at the time that um, having the Union Jack was uh, tantamount to having uh, like a smear of blood uh, on the flag, and people weren't that happy about it. But the idea was that it's an act of reconciliation, and two nations must come together and fought one new nation. So you have this flag in 1927, and it persists up until 1994. From 1948 to 1994, you have this um, legislative system of apartheid, um, which separates both black and white and English and Afrikaner. So you had separate schools for the English and Afrikaans, um, separate languages, um, and quite a lot of internal hostility. Um, and obviously huge human rights abuses against um, black South Africans. So in 1994, 
and you have a, a new South African flag that incorporates um, the colors of the African National Congress, the Party of Liberation, and the party that's still in power now, um, and um, some of the other colors from the flag. So you have uh, the red, white, and blue um, from Union Jack as well. Very rare to see anyone uh, wave the old South African flag. Um, it's seen as uh, quite a hostile act. Um, but there was a, uh, a rally, um, the purpose of the rally was to protest against bomb murders. So in South Africa, we have this, uh, quite unusual phenomenon, um, where farmers are brutally attacked and murdered and tortured, um, far in excess, um, of the usual crime statistics that we have. So South Africa has quite a high murder rate. We have about, uh, 33 per hundred thousand people that get murdered and about Five out of the hundred thousand relate to um, home invasions uh, or attacks from outsiders. A lot of the rest relates to uh, uh, domestic abuse, uh, husbands killing wives, wives killing husbands, and then uh, gang warfare and uh, people getting drunk at bars and killing each other. Um, but among farmers, you find that your chances of being murdered are about a hundred and a hundred thousand, and that the nature of the crimes is such that they uh, aren't ordinary crimes. People often um, Onto just robbed, that they'll be tied up, that they'll have a knife put down their necks, that they'll um, molten plastic and just pour over them, uh, that they'll have drills pushed and pushed into their knees. Um, and uh, at, at some juncture, a very young farmer was killed in a brutal way. The community uh, rose up and had these spontaneous um, anti farm murder protests around the country, which were multiracial, uh, uh, black, white. And we have a group called Colored, which is a kind of mixed race group uh, from Malaysia. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people who work on the farms, you know, spontaneously joined these marches. There was then reporting that at the marches, people were waving the old flag and burning the new one. And a, uh, quite well-renowned journalist, Nicholas Bauer, uh, disseminated on Twitter, these images. It turned out that, uh, the images were uh, not from South Africa, they were from seven years before, they were actually from Holland, um, but it inflamed the passions. So. Um, one, a leader of one of the, uh, um, NGOs in South Africa laid a complaint, uh, and, uh, my clients have gone on a talk show, um, with the leader of the stream, um, where the, the leader of the group is the Nelson Mandela um, foundation that said, we think the South African flag to be banned. The, my client being Afriforum said, we think that, um, also African flag is very offensive, that if anyone brings it to an Afriforum rally, we'll tell them to put it away. Uh, but we think that banning it is a bad idea, uh, that you could create a precedent which would lead to the banning of many other flags, um, and on that basis would oppose it. So the uh, case went to court, um, and there was most deliberation about whether you could have a banning under the statute, as I mentioned. One of the questions was, uh, our statute refers to speech being banned, um, it actually refers to words being banned, not speech. Was One of the questions was, is a flag a word? Uh, we argue that flag is not a word. You might think the flag is a form of speech, that waving the flag is speech. And right, you have uh, cases where it's a guy who wore a jacket that has this sign in the draft, um, and that was recognized as speech. Uh, flag burning in America is recognized as a protected form of speech. Um, but speech seems like a broader category than words. Uh, and the third case, um, which is the one that I'm probably the most well known for because it was televised for about nine days. Uh, involves a complaint against uh, the leader of South Africa's third biggest political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, 
And that uh, the leader of that party is a guy called Judas Malevich. They would describe themselves as a, a Marxist, Leninist, uh, black nationalist organization. Um, they take the view that um, no one should be allowed to own land in South Africa, that all land should be owned by the state. So in that sense, truly communist. Uh, that white people should be treated differently to black people, that uh, they should be um, told where to live and or driven into the sea. Um, and are quite famous for singing a certain song, which is known as Kill the Boer. Um, the Boers refer to this ethnic group of Afrikaners. Um, and uh, I'll play you the little extracts from that. Shoot to kill, kill our Shoot to kill, the monster. Kiss the poor, the farmer. Kiss the poor, the farmer. Brr, pa, pa, brr, pa, pa. Attention. Part of our MK guerrillas were called Nyamazan. It was their combat name. So when we say shoot to kill Nyamazan, we are commanding Nyamazan to shoot and kill. The message in the chant is very clear. Shoot to kill, kill Nyamazan means shoot to kill the enemy forces who are standing in between us and our freedom. If I want to sing my Lord, kill the boa, kill the farmer, I will sing it. I said to you, I don't sing it. It doesn't mean I will not sing it. I can sing it. Anyone who sings it will be well justified to sing it. Let's not make mistake about it. It's not like we're just singing in J. We were singing with a clear conscience in our mind that if opportunity prevails, we'll bomb the union building. The complainant has led evidence of someone whose wife was murdered in front of him who's now paralyzed. He testified in this court. And he said, whenever he hears that song, it brings back the memory of that day. He broke into tears in this court. That is trauma. That is legitimate trauma. Is your claim, would, would, does that trauma, does that evidence motivate you to stop singing the song? No. You will not respond to legitimate pain of someone who's been traumatized by hearing you chant, kill the poor, kill the farmer. I said, I'm not moved. Yes. I'm I said I'm not moved. Let me repeat five times. I'm not moved by that case you brought here. I am not moved. And if that will make me lose a case, let me lose it. I'm not moved. You said what we need is a system in place to get rid of white people. Is that correct? Yes. What would so, that mean to get rid of white people? So if we go into a conference and we go or into parliament and make a constitutional uh, amendment, that all whites must be driven to the sea, and any white who remains here is going to be killed. Then we engage in that type of a, a program to drive all whites uh, to the sea. It's an institutionalized decision. This is an extract from your speech in Newcastle on the 7th of November, um, where you stated this phrase, we are not calling for the slaughter of white people, at least for now. So you're saying you are not ruling out that in the future you may very well call for the slaughter of white people. It may not be me. Could it be you? 
It could be me. If I asked you to pledge to say, I will never call for the slaughter of white people, would you make that pledge? I will do it with ease. Make that pledge. Why would I do that? I'm asking you to make that pledge. I don't, you I said won't, I will do it. I, I won't do it. Make the pledge. I won't do it. You won't do it. Madiba coerced us into reconciling with people who have never been one with. That was a myth. It is unrealistic. You can't reconcile if you have never been together. In April 2010, Leon Kukumu at the age of 39 was attacked on his farm near Kalnan in Gauteng. The attackers screamed the words, die white man, die, viva Malema, as they were attacking Kukumu. In June 2014, Knowledge, Paulus and Glazi, 28, admitted to murdering five white farmers in three months between March and June 2014. Quote, my hate for white people made me do it, he said. He described his conduct as merely going to work and boasted in the courtroom about the fact that he had six murders under his belt. You'd stated earlier that there are no murders of white people. What you say you mean by that is they are just murders. Now, I've given you two examples where the contention is that these are racially motivated. There's no problem of white people being killed. There's no problem of farmers being killed. Are you willing to condemn the murder of white people? No, I'm willing to condemn murder, not of white people. On 6th of March 2009, Alice Lotta at the age of 76 and her daughter Helen at the age of 57 were tortured to death on their farm in Allen Bridge near Valcom in the Free State. Their home was several hundred meters from the Allen Ridge police station. Both women were tortured for hours being stabbed with broken glass bottles in their vaginas. One of the women also had her breast cut off while she was still alive. Helen's injuries were so extreme that the medical examiner was unable to tell if she had also been raped. Alice had been stabbed in the neck and throat and had drowned in her own blood. Their blood was used to write the words, kill the Boer on the walls of their homestead. The torturers who tortured this mother and daughter to death, and then wrote the words, kill the boar in blood. Were they in a position of power over those two women? My Lord, we don't know if they are farmers. We don't know their social standing. We don't know their relationship to the means of production. And at the face value, if you present it like that without those facts to me, it's murder. Now that just shows me how sick and twisted your ideological position is. You've said in order to work out whether there's a power relationship, you need to know if those women are working class. That is outrageous. It's so obvious to every person in this court that a person who tortures another person to death exercises power over them, and you will not acknowledge that. Can you not see the problem with that? No, I never said I'm someone moderate. I'm very radical and very militant, and I make no apology about that. And I stand by everything I said. My Lord, let them play you the old video. I said, and I remember it very well, there's no farm murder. There are no white people being murdered in South Africa. Would you embrace violence as a process to decolonize South Africa? Colonialism is violent. It's like racism. And the only way to deal with violence, you must be violent. Therefore, there is nothing wrong in engaging in a revolution and want uh, to be suggesting that you can be engaged in violence. Revolution itself is violent. You would uh, 
be happy to then endorse the use of violence for your revolutionary aims. My Lord, when the time comes and the conditions on the ground necessitate that arms must be taken, we'll do so without hesitation. I'm not scared of death. I'm not scared of death. Scared? I don't know why I'm still alive. Are you scared of I killing? I died a long time ago. Are you scared of killing? I'm not scared of killing. A revolutionary is a walking killing machine. Not scared of death. If that need arise, I will kill. And I will do so with no hesitation. I'm going to be president of this country, whether you like it or not. And I will preside over the affairs of this country, including presiding over you. I think you must start adjusting to that reality. The sooner you do that, the less chest pains you'll have when that reality comes. So that uh, final line that Mr. Malema will be president um, is not just an act of hubris. Um, the African National Congress, which I mentioned, has um, been the governing body for the last uh, 30 years or so in Africa, has been on uh, the decline and may well uh, receive less than 15% of the vote. And would then enter into a coalition with an ideological partner, the likely economic freedom fighters. Uh, this has been openly discussed. Um, and the idea would be that Mr. Lamar would be a deputy president. So would then be given an opportunity to uh, put into action some of his ideas. We uh, have a, a rule in South Africa, which is borrowed from international law called the Rabat kind of action, which is that when you're assessing hate speech, um, you should look at the context of the speech and you should look at uh, the status of the speaker. Um, and the idea is, at least in the back of action, is the idea that someone who is uh, powerful, who's a politician, who can command a crowd of thousands, uh, should be treated differently to an average citizen, um, you know, who's sending out a tweet in Mars' basement. What we found in practice um, is that the status of the speaker has been uh, interpreted quite differently. Um, so our Human Rights Commission um, has expressed the view that when you're looking at the status of the speaker, it's a simple question of looking at the race of the speaker and the race of the target of the group. And that what you then do is um, consult some kind of uh, privileged Olympic experiment um, and you uh, determine whether it counts as hate speech or not on that basis. And as we explicitly said, that if the speaker is black and the victims are white, you should come to a different conclusion than if the same words were used um, and the races were reversed. It's always an interesting question whether you should take that into account or not. So uh, I'll ask you guys now, based on what I've told you about how hate speech law operates, um, two cases where I haven't told you in the outcome, uh, what happened with the old South African flag and what happened with Mr. Maneva? And yes, the consequences were that the case was dismissed against him. Uh, there was a finding that there was no active hate speech. Um, that matter is on appeal and I'll be hungry in September. Um, the old South African flag was banned, and that also went on appeal. Um, the ban was narrowed, um, um, but basically the idea is that any gratuitous display of the old South African flag uh, would amount uh, to head speech. Um, there initially was a finding that private displays of the flag would amount as well, so if you had one in your house. Um, and now the view is that there are certain clear exceptions where um, the flag would be protected. So if it was used for uh, journalistic purposes, what one of the ironies of the flag litigation was that after people not seeing the flag for 25 years, it was suddenly plastered everywhere in the news media. I gave a talk at the university in 
asked the students in the last six months after the judgment came out, how many of you have seen our South African flag? Everybody's hands go. And I said, um, um, in the last 10 years before that, how many of you saw the South African flag? Two hands went up. <laughs> so you have this funny backfire effect that when you ban certain symbols, they become incredibly popular and they begin to kind of gain a lot of widespread currency. It also changed their meaning. So there's certain people um, who ch change their online avatars into things that resemble the flag or the flag itself. Um, the New York um, city flag uh, has those same colors. Um, the person was once near Amsterdam. Um, so there's a famous athlete you might have heard of called Katha Semenya, um, who is slapped and run at, uh, contentious because um, it's unclear whether she qualifies as a woman or not and done very well with Olympic medals and had received a uh, set of shoes from from Mike that are those colors and was then reprimanded by one of our ministers for wearing them on the ground. They were reminiscent of the South African flag. Um, so there's an explicit protection for journalistic use of it, for academic use of it, um, and for artistic use of it. Um, but the, the argument is that those cases might be insufficient, that if what you're trying to do is determine whether someone has the intention to propagate hatred and incite harm against the racial group, that she needs to look at the particular context. So another example that we found in South Africa are uh, black protesters waving the old South African flag to condemn the new South African government on the grounds that they're just as bad as the uh, apartheid government. It seems like their intention is not to propagate hatred against black people. And you can imagine a group of uh, military red actors um, who wear uniforms um, from 1900s uh, to 2000, um, and that those that fought in the Second World War uh, would have also African flags in their uniform, the uh, uniforms they wore to defeat the Nazis. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem like they're doing it to uh, support white supremacy or anything like that. So that context sensitive approach will sort of be determined in future litigation probably. Um, and uh, yeah, the finding with regards to Mr. Malema, one of the questions that came out was whether it was necessary to prove a causal connection between the speech and uh, the acts of violence uh, that had occurred. Uh, the complaint was initiated um, partly because there had just been a young farmer who was brutally murdered and strung up. Um, and uh, at his arraignment proceedings, the FF proceeded to sing the song, Kill the Boy. Um, and that's what preceded the complaint. And so one of the questions was, should you show that there's a causal connection between the speech, you know, and an act of killing? Um, in prior litigation, my constitutional court had said that that would be unnecessary, um, that it would make the bar too high, um, and that in any event, what you're dealing with here is not a criminal stand, and you're not locking anyone up for the speech, um, you're sanctioning them with the forced apology or with, uh, you know, a financial sanction. Um, and so the lower court, then in defiance of the constitutional court, said, well, there's no causal connection. So not hate speech, um, which is one of the reasons why I sort appeal. But there is a sense uh, in which the difficulty with hate speech laws generally is much as you might think they're cool with common sense morality, you can craft them in a manner that would make them perfectly do so, um, that they won't necessarily be applied that way, uh, that there'll always be political considerations that play a role in determining uh, who we prosecuted under them and who will be held liable under them. Um, but that might have to do with um, who's in power at the time. Nature of legislation is that you're really crafting a weapon. Um, and at some point in time, um, when you're not empowered, there's fashion remains that your enemies may pick that weapon up and bludgeon you to death with it. Um, we now have a uh, hate speech bill, um, which will introduce criminal sanctions um, up to eight years in prison. Um, and it follows um, 
largely the language of our Equality Act, but differs from our constitution. I mentioned earlier that our constitution court um, allows for hate speech to either incite harm, in the sense that you're calling on people to perform a harm against another group, or that the speech is the harm itself, um, which is meant to be that you can show that there's a psychological torment. Um, and the difficulty with criminalizing the latter is that that isn't something our constitution um, refers to, but you might tolerate it uh, on the grounds that the sanctions that are being imposed are non-criminal in nature. We have a, a clause in the constitution called the limitations clause, which allows for certain rights to be limited if you can show that they're uh, reasonable and justifiable in an open democratic country. There's a, a proportionality in it. Uh, Americans have um, other kind of common law provisions that revolve for limitations of rights. Um, and what we have in here is a sort of bait and switch where you develop that in a civil tradition where the penalties are very low, and then you copy it as a criminal tradition where the penalties are much higher. Um, so that gives you an idea of what the legal landscape looks like. I think there's some interesting moral questions, whether you, um, you know, how we should define home, and, uh, whether we should prohibit any speech at all, um, which groups should be given special protections. Uh, it's not clear for you guys. Let's thank Mark.